0: Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to So Curious. I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. And I'm
1: the Boa Bay. We're your hosts on this incredible podcast.
0: And today we're looking at grief and how it can affect your mental health.
1: First, we're going to be sitting down to talk with grief researcher Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor to figure out what exactly grief is.
0: Mm, And then we're going to be joined by creativity expert Natalie Nixon to learn about how we can find meaning following a loss.
1: Yeah, so this is a big one, Kirsten. uh, Have you navigated the very muddy, murky waters of loss and grief?
0: Yeah, but I feel like no matter what you look up about grief, it's always like, Okay, here are the, what, five stages, seven stages. And then once you do that, your checklist, and then you're done. And it's like, there's no way that's just for grief to be over. It's like you live with that for the rest of your life.
1: So now we're going to welcome Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Please introduce yourself and tell us about your work and what you do.
2: I am Mary Frances O'Connor. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Arizona, And I have written the book, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss.
0: And can I ask, what led you specifically in your life to start researching
2: and working on grief? Well, you know, as a scientist, I have always had this passionate curiosity about the brain. How is it that the brain turns these experiences we have in life into, you know, the little gray mush you find in the brain? Mm And I think for me, there was such a clear relationship between the loved ones we have in our life and falling in love with them, and then the difficulties we have after they die, that it seemed clear there must be something going on in the brain that made that all happen. But on a more personal note, my mother was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer when I was 13. And she lived another thirteen years. Her oncologist called it his first miracle. Oh, um, wow. yeah, which is just remarkable. But yeah. it, it still meant that she died when I was twenty-six, and mm-hmm. I was already in graduate school. I think it meant that I just felt really comfortable around people who were grieving. And so doing interviews with people and then sort of looking at their brain scans and looking at their blood tests, perhaps let me kind of dive in more deeply than psychologists had done previously.
0: So I think one thing that when I hear grief, I think of death and dying, right? That's, yeah. a, I think, the most yeah. common one. Yeah. But we're doing this whole season on mental health and like we're learning that there are so many other forms of loss that can cause grief. Can you go into, like, in your experience, some other common examples?
2: Yeah, I think of different kinds of grief as coming about for different reasons. So I think that the death of a loved one is something that, you know, social mammals have had to deal with from time immemorial. And so it doesn't surprise me that maybe the brain has evolved really specific ways to deal with that kind of grief. So you form an attachment bond, right? You fall in love with your spouse or your baby, and then your brain has to understand, has to update at some point, if that person dies, that the world no longer contains them. So for me, I feel like the neurobiological aspect of that makes a lot of sense, but when that happens, when you think about it, like if I use the word daughter to describe myself, that actually implies two people, mm-hmm. doesn't it? And so does the word spouse. That implies two people yeah. or sister. And so I think what happens is when a loved one dies, we lose a piece of ourselves as well, right? We lose a way that we understand how to function in the world. Well, so here's then the analogy. If I lose my job, how I function in the world is very much informed by I'm a professor, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And so now I've lost a part of myself. And so I think those other kinds of grief, the loss of health, say, for example, or the loss of hearing, they are a loss of a piece of ourself and how we function in the world. And so even though they're not the death of a person, they still are experienced as grief. When I was
0: in high school and college, I used to work at a retirement home. And Mm -hmm. I worked with a couple people who were in later stages of dementia. People whose spouses had passed and who didn't remember and were constantly having to be told again. And yeah. in that moment, it is like the first time they are hearing it. it. Is. And as the person having to do it or watching the nurses do it for us, it's 10, 15 times a day, you know? Yeah. And I know sometimes the nurses were really interesting about it because they were like, if they were noticing it was taking such a physical toll on them, they would say something like, okay, well, it's four o'clock on a Tuesday. Where is he usually at four o'clock on a Tuesday? You know, not lying, but just it was like a physical health issue. So I'm curious, like, what have you noticed in your research about what grief can do physically? Like, you know, you hear of people
2: dying from a broken heart. Yeah. The first thing it makes me think of is I think you can think of grieving as a form of learning. The brain is really a prediction machine for us, isn't it? Like that's the point of Mm -hmm. this organ we carry around and devote all this glucose to, is to sort of help us to figure out what might happen next given thousands of days of experience. And so, for example, if you wake up next to the same person every day for thousands of days, and then you wake up one morning and they're not next to you, it's actually not a very good prediction that they've died, right? Death is a very unusual event. And so because of that, the brain has to actually learn that they're gone through experience, through day after day of not putting socks in their drawer when you do the laundry Mm. and the plants that they used to take care of are now dying, right? It's days and days of experience that actually teaches the brain in a form of learning that this person is gone. So you can imagine how much harder that is if, The brain isn't completely healthy, right? If grieving is a form of learning, then anything that affects our learning is going to make grieving harder.
1: You know, you talked about learning and the first thing I thought about was children and how do we talk to them about Mm. loss and grieving and things like that. Could you, I guess, open up that discussion a little bit more? What's the best way to maybe talk to a child who's learning about the world around them about death and interacting with them about grief?
2: Yeah. Well, we definitely know that children do grieve. So what we know is that it can look different because they don't have all the same capabilities as an adult does. So what I mean by that is death is actually a pretty abstract thing when you think about it. The idea that everybody you see is alive, but at one point, everyone will die. That's just a completely abstract idea Mm. that at a certain age, children aren't really able to understand even though they will feel enormous sadness and maybe even anger if they're separated from the person who they love. So even if the child is just experiencing a separation because they don't really fully understand the death is universal and they're never going to come back, It still doesn't mean that they aren't experiencing all those emotions about missing the person. And so I think it's important to be as honest with children as we can because they are trying to learn this abstract concept and also because they are experiencing really strong emotions. Kids will revert to behaviors that they used to do when they were younger. So you might have a kid who wets the bed again or a kid who starts sucking their thumb again because they're trying to sort of understand a world where they're really missing this person who is gone.
0: Is there as much of a physical response with kids
2: like on your body? Oh, that's a really good question. And you had asked me earlier about the broken heart effect, Mm. which is a real thing. So we know that in adults, for example, for men in the first six months after their wife has died, they're twice as likely to suffer a heart attack compared to a married man at the same age. And so that's a really dramatic physical stress that you're dealing with, if it can cause a heart attack, right? Now, granted, this is not everyone, but twice the risk, that is really an increase in the physical stress this person is under. For children, although I do not do research on children myself, the added challenge is that these systems are still developing. And so one of the things we know is that kids develop really secure relationships with parents who are loving or caregivers who are loving. And that sort of sets the homeostasis for their brain and for their hormones, right? This is what life is supposed to be like. And that enables resilience when you're older, because you sort of are able to If something stressful happens, you're able to sort of get back to what feels normal again. But with children, if they're still developing when something really stressful like the death of a caregiver happens, then where that Homeostasis gets set can actually change. And this is no small thing. Bereavement can really be thought of as a health disparity. We know in COVID, for example, one in four deaths due to COVID left a child without a parent or a caregiving grandparent. But that wasn't uniform, right? So it was twice as likely if you were a Black child, or it was four times as likely if you were a Native American kid. And so as we think about the impact impact of grief. I think it's also important that we think about how we distribute resources in order for grief education and intervention and support to really be effective in our society.
1: I want to throw a big question at you earlier. You mentioned COVID-19, the lockdown and everything that we've been experiencing, Mm -hmm. and we've all went through it all at once. Can you talk to like the effect it might have on us culturally as just a species to experience loss How might that affect us, like, you know, mass grief on a global scale?
2: I think when we lose a loved one specifically, that kind of loss, I've been doing research with people who have had that kind of death event during the pandemic. And one of the things that we notice is those who were having deaths that were completely unexpected, they have really had a difficult time. I interviewed this 70-year-old woman. She said her husband was you know, a search and rescue volunteer, fairly healthy in his 70s. And she dropped him off at the ER one evening because he was having trouble breathing. And she wasn't allowed to go into the ER, of course. And a couple of days later, she's having a conversation about taking him off a ventilator. And so that kind of unexpected loss really rips the rug out from under us. And and we know that because a lot more people were experiencing unexpected losses that this is a particularly difficult time for people but here's the flip side to that and it has something to do with what you were saying i think grief can feel most isolating when in our own heads we're very much thinking about my grief but Grief is actually a universal human experience. And somehow, if you can kind of shift a little bit and think about it as there is grief, that grief is one of the human emotions, sometimes it can help you to feel a little more connected to the people who've come before you and have survived their losses, right? Or people around you who may be going through this. Well, with the pandemic, we had more people around us who were going through loss. And yeah. my hope is that then by talking about it more, we'll actually learn more about what people's experience is like with loss. I'd be a little less afraid to talk about it and then a little less afraid to feel it.
1: So maybe we'll become a more empathetic community mm. due to this mass grief event.
2: Yeah,
0: that is my hope. I've always been someone who finds a lot of comfort hearing that someone else got through what I'm going through, you know, and it's very true when it comes to grief. It's one of those things you feel like you will, you cannot see an end of that tunnel, you know, you can't see a world where it's going to get brighter. And then you look at some stories, which I'm sure you've heard and seen so many stories of people coming out the other side. That's like, oh, there is hope. It feels like the end of our world, but it is the most human thing, right? To live yeah. and then to die.
2: That's right. And I think when you're talking with someone who's grieving, it really depends on your intention, mm-hmm. why you are sharing your own grief story. Many of us feel really uncomfortable around people who are grieving. Oh, it's really yeah. hard to be with people who are suffering. <laughs> I mean, and it so, can be awkward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right? So if you're telling your story so they will stop talking, then that's not going to feel the same <laughs> yeah. as if you're sharing your story in order to really commiserate and really understand the similarities and differences. So yeah. that, that intention really matters.
1: You've said specifically, apparently, you do not give advice on getting over a loss. Can you explain to us and the audience why?
2: Yeah, this is sort of related to if you're hanging out with someone who's grieving. It turns out insight just doesn't usually come from advice. And so you can share your story and the person may find connections to it that may help them, but it's not the same as trying to tell them how it should be or how it should go for them. I mean, even me, so I may be an expert on grief, but I'm an expert on grief on average, right? Each individual is an expert on their own grief or their own relationship with this person who's died. And so I think that we all have to take what we hear and really reflect, does that express my experience as well? And does that way of coping help me think of new ways that I might cope? And if those are the case, then that's fantastic. But I think that advice can come across as you're not doing it right or you should be feeling something different than you're feeling and grieving is hard enough without either of those i think often it's our desire which is you know maybe a natural desire that we think our job when we're listening to someone who's telling us about a hard time they're having we think our job is to cheer them up but that often isn't really the job. The job is to be there with them, to really try and see it from their perspective, to ask questions about parts that you really want to understand better. What impact did that have? And how do you feel like that's changed your life experience? And maybe what would you tell someone who was going through the same thing now that you've been through this, right? So I think there's a way in which if we can just be there with other people and not try to change their experience as much, it can feel more compassionate, more connecting to the other person.
0: Thank you so much, Mary Frances O'Connor. We are covering so many different aspects of mental health in this season, and I just feel like everything we learn is just conducive to the fact that none of mental health is one size fits all. It's so intricate. And
1: this conversation has been, oddly enough, soothing.
0: Yeah, right? Yeah, it is. You'd good. think, I was like, oh, are we going to be sad? And I was like, no, this is very uplifting, actually. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah,
0: so thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Mary Francis for joining us. It is kind of nice to have someone like Mary Frances validate that it does have a physical effect when for you're sure. grieving. So you don't yeah, just yeah. feel like, oh, am I just losing my mind?
1: Hey, Kirsten. Hey, Bay. Do you ever wonder whether this planet is even going to be around in 20, 30 years?
0: <sighs> yeah.
1: It can be overwhelming to think of how to deal with some of the biggest problems we're facing. Our friends over at the Franklin Institute talked to some of the sharpest minds working in science and technology. And I got to say, I think 2050 is going to be a pretty cool year. Mm-hmm. Check out The Road to 2050, a new docu-series from Franklin Institute at fi.edu.
0: So now we're going to be joined in the studio by Natalie Nixon to speak with us on how creativity can aid the grieving process. Natalie, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. Can you introduce yourself, Natalie, to the
3: thousands and thousands of
0: listeners and uh, (laughs) tell everyone what it is that you do?
3: Sure. Hi, my name is Natalie Nixon. I'm the founder and CEO of Figure Eight Thinking. I advise leaders and companies on transformation through the lenses of wonder and rigor and foresight. And I help them think through questions like what's our purpose, what's our next. I'm a global keynote speaker, author of The Creativity Leap and an advisor.
1: I guess we'll just jump right into it. How would you define creativity?
3: So I've spent a lot of time thinking about how to make creativity much more accessible to people so that they don't think of it as a nice-to-have but as a must-have. Right. Oh. And it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. And because we're all trying to innovate – But in actuality, the engine for innovation is creativity. So the definition that I landed on that's spelled out in a lot of detail in my book, The Creativity Leap, is that creativity is our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems and produce novel value. And that value could be social value, financial value, cultural value.
0: So let's talk about creativity and grief. How can creativity help someone who's going through the grieving process, who's really in the thick of it?
3: Right. So around spring of 2020, so we were all getting acquainted with this new reality of the COVID-19 pandemic. I read an interview in the Harvard Business Review with Scott who is an editor at HBR. He was interviewing David Kessler, who is one of the world's foremost experts, globally renowned experts on the topic of grief. And there were two takeaways I got from reading the interview. The first was that David Kessler said, okay, we typically think of five stages of grief, which are denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, and then finally acceptance. And he said, these stages are totally nonlinear, which was a big relief to me because I was feeling like an emotional ping pong ball already Mm -hmm. where (laughs) you you do some negotiation with our new constraints on life, and then you feel like you're accepting everything, and then you feel totally sad about a loss. And so that kind of topsy-turviness of grief was the big takeaway. But the larger takeaway is that David Kessler said, there's actually a sixth stage of grief. Instead of ending on this plateau of acceptance we should actually end with a sixth stage of meaning and purpose. And the reason this stood out to me as a creativity strategist is that creativity is all about the business and work of meaning-making, of identifying at the end of all of this, what is the point, right? And how do we collectively, in the case of a COVID-19 pandemic, figure out our next phase of meaning and purpose. So for individuals, especially who are in whatever phase of grief and grieving, it's, I think, a bit optimistic and helpful for us to think about that the final destination is not acceptance, this plateau, but it's really about figuring out what is the meaning of all this. And this is when our ability to optimize our creative capacity really becomes important.
1: And I was really looking forward to this question too, because I never put creativity and grief in the same ballpark at all. So thank you for that, that's incredible. What are some uh, examples of ways someone can use creativity to grieve, any specific actions, activities?
3: Well, let me first kind of map out a new kind of mental model that we could adopt when we're thinking about building our creative capacity, and especially as it relates to working through grief and grieving. And, and by the way, you know, my next book is going to be a book about flourishing. And One of the things that I really want to drive home is that flourishing is not about being on top of the world and happy all the time. We actually, in order to flourish, in order to really optimize creativity, need to experience kind of the pitfalls and the valleys of life. So I think it is also important for us in our human condition to really accept and understand that grief, grieving, working through loss is not something we can circumvent. It's not something that we can hop over. It's really something that we really have to hold and and mold and work through. The mental model I'm talking about is something I call CQ, or our creativity quotient. Okay. We know about IQ mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and our our ability to measure our level of intelligence, and we are increasingly accepting that we all have an EQ, an emotional intelligence. I believe we all also have a CQ, and that CQ starts with a mindset of gratitude. Mm-hmm. And what's cool about really practicing gratitude is that you actually are becoming a systems designer. You are understanding yourself as a node, as part of a larger network. Um, And I, I like to give people a pretty simple, not so simple exercise of, you know, take an object in your immediate space and environment. It could be a pen. It could be this bottle of water that I'm looking at right now. And you really begin to deconstruct in an act of gratitude, how did this bottle of water become possible, right? So we have acts of nature and rainwater, right? We have someone who designed this portable way to transport this water. We have material scientists who develop the plastic. We have our ability to earn a living so that we could buy water, even though it's questionable that we should even have to buy water. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole, different different conversation. That's mm-hmm. a whole other conversation. whole podcast. Let go with me here, right? <laughs> so, so, but we begin to see... Ourselves in the midst of a larger context. So first there's gratitude. And think of these as concentric circles. Gratitude then begets humility, right? Because you begin to understand yourself as part of a larger whole. After humility, that really leads to curiosity. And the reason why humility is so important for curiosity is because so many of us have been questioned, shamed. We're not necessarily very good at asking questions because of our educational environments the way we first dared to raise our hand maybe, and we were (laughs) snickered at, laughed at, or maybe even worse, ignored. Mm -hmm. And that's also happened to some of us in our work environments. So in my work, I often don't see a culture of curiosity in work environments. So we have gratitude, humility, curiosity, that ability to ask questions because there's no shame to our game. We realize that we're part of a much larger whole. That curiosity then leads to empathy because curiosity is actually the precursor to empathy. You can't Walk a mile in anyone's shoes unless you have the ability to frame a new and different question. Like, why do they do it that way and not Mm -hmm. my way? Why do they sit over there and not over here? Right? So, once you can ask the question, you can really start to radically empathize. And then, ideally, empathy leads to. Action, equitable action. So where this connects to grief and grieving and getting through the grieving process is that one of the best ways to get out of our own black hole of grief, feeling sorry for ourselves, the not so good feels that that Mm -hmm. are involved to to Mm -hmm. sadness, right, is to begin to see ourselves as part of a larger whole. Part of that is interacting with others, volunteering, it's helping others. And it's in those acts of collaboration that those creative sparks really begin to happen. And you see in your mindset beginning to shift literally from the acts of gratitude, that mental state of gratitude, to humility, curiosity, empathy, and action.
1: How do you collaboratively grieve? How does collaboration Ooh. and grief overlap? What does that intersection look like?
3: You know, I'm African-American. And one of the obvious things touch points of grief for people is when there's a member of the community who passes away, when there's a family member who passes away. And so in my faith tradition, in my culture tradition, that collective coming together is something that I remember from childhood. It's something that I still practice in my own community. And it's when you're talking about grief because of the loss of a family member or a loved one, those are moments in life where the support is needed for those who are remaining behind, much more mm-hmm. so, you know, for the person who's deceased. But that's a great example of collectively being able to come together through creative expression, through sound, through music, through food, all the sensorial design experiences often become a really important part of moving through grief. I think on a solo level, it's interesting. A lot of people start to find a reconnection back to nature as well in order to move through grief, in order to hold it, in order to to process it. There's something about the elements of nature that, that make us attuned to what we're feeling.
1: Yeah. And is there any story, if you feel comfortable sharing, Connected to Grief, interacting with that creatively. And can you talk about the specifics around that?
3: Gosh, I think the first personal story of Grief & Grief for me would relate to my father. November 6, 2022 is 10 years since he died, since he passed away. And I played jazz music all day long. My father was a big jazz head. He had an incredible Blue Note jazz album collection He loved Art Blakey and Horace Silver and Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk. And that was a way for me to be tuned in to who he was. And for me, it made me feel him in that way. So I paid attention to that feeling of missing him and converted that for me in a way to make me smile, to remember the parts of himself that he gave to me. I have a love of jazz because of what my dad modeled for me. And I think that's the other part of the sensorial design piece I'm talking about. We can design our way into whatever we need to do to incorporate the feeling, not shun it, not Mm -hmm. try to tuck it away, but to feel the feels and to do whatever it is that makes you remember. I think memory is something that's really fascinating to me. I don't understand all the neuroscience of memory, but there is a connection between our senses, what we can create that helps us to process memory and to use it in a really catalytic way. When
0: I was a kid, my mom always had this Quote on the fridge. She's like a big quote person. And it didn't mean much to me as I was young, as with most things your parents do, right? And then you get older and you make sense of them. And it said, do it anyway. She used to say this a lot. And it was about acknowledging how you're feeling. You know, I'm scared to go back to the gym. I want to get back into shape. I'm afraid I'm going to be judged. Don't pretend that's not true. Feel it, but do it anyway. And I'm angry I have to ask someone for help in this thing. You know, it's like we don't have to toxically pretend like it's okay. Get over it. Feel it, but then do it anyway. And I I love that that's something you're like – really
3: making into such an art form, truly. Trying to, and that's what you just described is a big part of what David Kessler is talking about in terms of meaning-making and mm. that sixth stage of taking the load off of our frontal neocortex and the cognitive load mm-hmm. of rationally processing something, doing it anyway mm-hmm. through the action and the activity, which helps us to be more attuned to how we feel, and then we can circle back to, then what does that mean to me, right? Because mm. for me drawing the connection back to what you just shared is the first feeling and to do on November 6th around remember my dad's passing was I needed a sound yeah. <laughs> to, to kind of envelop me. Yeah. That's what I had to do. And then that helped to trigger memory. And then that helped for me to cognitively understand the pieces of my father's life that are still a part of me and a part of my environment. But yeah, that action... The feeling it is really important. And I wonder, as we are in this figuring out this next iteration of the pandemic, because there's new variations that we'll have to yeah, work through, and working out hybrid work and all these blurred boundaries, if we will allow more of the human to show up to work, if we will allow... Uh, as we are seeing people's pets in the background of Zoom screens and <laughs> their children and, mm. and their mementos, if we will allow for the personal to become a bit more part of the work. I, I'm predicting that personal development and professional development will become more conjointly important, not these separate silos. We certainly
1: hope so. I hope so. Yeah, Yeah, seriously. Dr. Natalie Nixon, thank you so much for coming and sharing your insight, your wisdom. Do you have any final thoughts as it pertains to creativity, grief, or just like a a last word you want to leave our listeners with?
3: I just thank you for inviting me. I think this is a really important topic and I hope that anyone listening will really take to heart this notion of creativity and and feeling being their pathway through to kind of synthesize the grief and make it part of your life. Don't shun it. Don't compartmentalize it. Thank you. That's a beautiful way to
0: leave it. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Natalie, for giving us so much to think about and uh, and a lot of perspective.
0: Okay. So, as a musician, Bay, do you feel that your creative process has helped you with loss or difficult moments?
1: Absolutely. One hundred percent. You yeah. know, I am discovering now at this point in my life how important creativity has been for me. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I just liked being creative. And that's always the best thing, right? When mm. you're lost in something. But what about you? Has comedy helped you through hard times?
0: Yeah, and I think definitely vice versa as well. Like, my hard times have been a big part of my joke content. Comedy helps with my trauma, but my trauma is how I got started in comedy.
1: During that process, you kind of, not detach, but it allows you a moment to let go of those hard, hard, hard feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, well, how can this rhyme? Right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know? I'm like, How I rhyme this? Right? You're like, my dog just died. How can I make a joke about this? <laughs> <laughs> to close out today's episode, we have another mindfulness segment with Marguerite Nicosia from The Shanti Project.
4: This is Marguerite Nicosia with The Shanti Project and another mindfulness exercise.
0: So with the work that you do with the Shanti Project, if you are able to share with your age group Mm -hmm. you're working with, are there a lot of like common threads in what you hear of what are the issues that are going on with students this age and this time?
4: Well, I was in middle school for the first time, and that was really cool. So I worked with sixth graders this year in this incredible inner city school in Bethlehem. Pennsylvania, and we got to a lesson talking about thoughts and emotions because our brain is built to be very busy and our brain can be filled with thoughts all the time. Mindfulness doesn't mean quieting your brain. It means just calming your brain. Your brain is meant to think and fire off and provide you with all this stuff. So the lesson was about thoughts and emotions. And when I asked class after class after class, using the word anxiety, you know, who in, who here feels anxious? What, what makes you anxious? It was like, boom, floodgates opened. Like they just wanted to talk about it. And I was amazed and impressed because I had anticipated this lesson kind of like me having to kind of draw a little bit of engagement out of them. But no, they were just ready to talk. And I think that that speaks to the incredible awareness that's happening culturally around mental health. And teenagers are not afraid to talk about what's going on in their lives, and it's wonderful. When my 10-week program came to an end, one of the students said to me, like, what, where are you going? <laughs> like, 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 you can't leave. <laughs> it was amazing. It's really cool. So let's all take a moment. We'll just take a deep breath in together, so breathe in. And breathe out, nice and slow. Okay, and I would invite you to just kind of become aware of how you're sitting. Just kind of think about it as like relaxed attention. And if you'd like to, close your eyes. If that's not comfortable for you, you can kind of just softly gaze down at either your lap or the floor. And then I want you to go ahead and uh, let's take another deep breath in and a deep breath out. And just bring your attention to your eyes and the area around your eyes and just go ahead and on your next in breath, just think of breathing in relaxation and just breathing out any tension. Just really, really just relax your eyes. And on your next breath, go ahead and bring that attention just to your face, your jaw, maybe just let your tongue drop from the top of your mouth. Just really relax with every in-breath, think relaxation. With every out-breath, just let go of the tension. And then on your next breath, go ahead and bring your attention to your neck, your shoulders, and just really, really give your shoulders some love. Just relax on the in-breath and let go of any tension on the out-breath. And now just pay attention to your breathing. And if you feel any areas of tension in your head or your neck or your shoulders, just go ahead and focus on maybe letting that go as you breathe out. And on your next in breath, go ahead and breathe in and out. Nice, slow, deep breaths. You can flutter your eyes open and really, really slowly just come back to the space and where we are and rejoin us. Good job, you guys.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. That was awesome.
0: Damn. Thank you. <laughs> that
1: was great. That was great. Oh
0: my gosh. I need, yeah. like, a, I'm just going to have to listen to the recording of that, like, every night before bed. <laughs> that was awesome. I can't imagine how beneficial that kind of stuff would be when I was at middle school age, you know? I
4: know. <laughs> Never had I tell that them language. All the time. I'm like, you guys, I wish I knew this stuff when I was your age. Mm-hmm. I'm just now learning it.
0: Well, hey, you get to do it now, right? You get to be the person to bring that to them.
4: Yeah, yeah. It's pretty amazing.
0: Thank you so much to Marguerite for doing this mindfulness segment with us throughout the season. And
1: next week, we'll be rounding out this season of So Curious with an exploration into a very popular, yet vague, buzzword we see used everywhere nowadays. Wellness.
2: It's something that we experience, and it's something that we evaluate for ourselves.
1: Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Look for So Curious, presented by the Franklin Institute.
0: God, how many times can we have to ask? We don't want to have to beg, but we just want you to get the updates.
1: Do it now. Do it now. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson and Emily Cherish of Radio Kismet. This podcast is also produced by Joy Montefusco, Giatri Das, and Aaron Armstrong of the Franklin Institute. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our assistant producer is Seneca White. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger.
0: And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. Oh yeah, and I'm the Bull Bay. See you next week.